Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. And there is this, of course, concept that people talk a lot of product market fit, but there's this other concept that people don't talk much about, which is the message product fit. You need to have a, a message that people really understand quickly what you're trying to do and it resonates with them. What will my customers like and buy? The timeless retail question today is answered with enterprise-grade purchasing, inventory, and sell-through analytics for big box sellers, but not SMBs. SMBs have long made those decisions with their guts and intuition. But what if a marketplace powered with those same analytics could enable small shops to purchase with the same information? FAIR has discovered this opportunity is worth $1 million in sales per day and growing. FAIR is a wholesale marketplace that helps retailers find and buy wholesale, while also connecting makers with the physical stores or businesses. And it was built using a data-first model that evens the playing field for all those small shops. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Marcelo Cortez, the co-founder and CTO of FAIR, joined us to explain how the company got started and the steps it took to reach the billion-dollar valuation it boasts today. Much of the success is thanks to FAIR's ability to analyze data and iterate based on what that data tells them. But it is also built on a sense of community between makers and buyers who have been able to find each other in a world filled with outside noise. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles. And today, we have Marcelo Cortez joining the show, the co-founder and CTO at FAIR. Marcelo, how's it going? It's great. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, fun having someone. You said you're in Toronto or a little bit north, right? Yeah, that's right. Our office in Canada is in Kitchener-Waterloo, which is about an hour from Toronto. Cool. Do you ever make it out to the San Francisco area? I do in normal times. Yeah. I go very often. <laughs> Uh, I usually go there once a month. Mm -hmm. Next time you're around, you'll have to stop by our studio and we can do an in-person interview. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, And I hope that can happen soon. Yeah, I hope so too. Fingers crossed. So I would love to hear a little bit about FAIR and your background and role at FAIR. Yes, of course. So FAIR was founded in 2017. Me, Max, and Daniele are the co-founders, the original co-founders. Jeff uh, also started the company with us, but he left and came after, came back after a few years. Mm-hmm. Fair is a wholesale marketplace, right? We help retailers, basically mostly physical stores, brick and mortar, find products to buy wholesale. And then on the other side of our marketplace, we have all the brands or makers on our platform that are 
selling products and we help connect those makers with the physical stores. Very cool. The makers reminded me kind of in a way of like the Etsy makers that normally would never be able to have their products in a large retailer like a Nordstrom. Is that accurate? Yeah. So we are somewhere in between Etsy. I would would say there is a little bit of intersection with Etsy, but uh, a little bit uh, a level above as well, where we do have smaller uh, manufacturers or makers that uh, have a small operation, but we also have some more sophisticated ones that have warehouses and, and things like that. Cool. How did you think about creating FAIR? Like, how did that idea come about? Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting story. So Max, who is our CEO, back in the day, uh, after he graduated from school, he was working on bank consulting. And uh, he was always an entrepreneur by heart. So he was always trying to do businesses on the side. Mm -hmm. So a friend of his asked him if he was willing to try to build a business of selling a product or distributing a product in the United States. And uh, the product was actually a physical umbrella, a rain umbrella that was manufactured in New Zealand called Blunt Mm -hmm. Umbrellas. It's a very cool umbrella. Like if you see one, it has cool shapes, cool, cool colors, doesn't break with wind. So he was like, yes, let's do this on the side. And that's when he learned how the wholesale industry works, especially in North America. He searched on Google, how do I start uh, selling products, right? Or how do I distribute products wholesale Mm -hmm. like everybody else does? And basically, there were a few ways. You can go find sales reps or hire sales agencies that will have all the sales reps trying to sell your products. You have to go to trade shows. And uh, he did all of those things. And eventually... He got this uh, company to be successful distributing the product in North America. But at the same time, throughout all this process, he couldn't stop thinking like that there's a lot of areas here that could be improved with technology. This whole market is really in the dark of technology. And years later, we met at Square. We all worked at Square together for four or five years each. And uh, combining the expertise we had there with dealing with small businesses with this idea of like, how can we really add technology to wholesale distribution and make it better? We finally came to the conclusion that uh, with all the data that's available online as well on products and on makers and on retailers, we could put it all together and uh, build this uh, idea that's adding, that could add a lot of value to everybody in the industry. That's awesome. Were there any technologies or insights that you gained while you guys were at Square that you took into the business when creating FAIR? Uh, basically, like, there isn't anything like technology that's advanced. Uh, there, there were many, a combination of many smaller things. So for example, the fact that uh, if you think of a small store, right, a, a brick and mortar store that might have one to five locations, which is usually our target audience, they are trying to compete with much larger brick and mortar stores, big box stores, or with e-commerce. And they have no data, right? If you think of Walmart, they have data on all their products. They know what sells well, where, what time of the year. And the little store, they're buying products basically all by intuition. They see a few products, they look at it, and they have to make a decision whether their customers are going to like it or not. We realized that... uh, we can actually build something that will give them the ability of having the same type of tools that much larger businesses or big box stores or e-commerce platforms have 
to make much more well-informed decisions on what products are going to work well in their stores. And on top of that, another thing that we learned a lot, of course, at Square is how to deal with underwriting these small businesses, right? We we helped Square build Square Capital, which is the, the lending program that they have at Square. Yep. And part of that process, we, we learned a lot about how do you decide how much credit to give to a store like this. And that's also part of what we do. As a store comes into our platform, we give them the ability to buy products that they can pay 60 days in the future. So we give them credit to buy products and we allow them to return any of these products if it doesn't work. Yeah, that's huge. When I saw that you all did that, I'm like, wow, I don't know how you make that work, but not only giving store owners credit and saying, you don't have to pay me right away, and you can return products that, yeah, it seems like I, don't, I haven't heard of anyone else doing that. So yeah, so that's how we are combining and adding technology to this ecosystem to make those things possible, right? We, we have to do our job well to be able to offer these value propositions. We have to make sure that we are recommending the right products to these stores and letting them buy or guiding them into buying the right amounts as well. We can't just let them buy way more than they will be able to sell. And we shouldn't be, uh, we should be steering them away from products that we don't think are going to perform well in their store. And if we do that part of the job well, the other part is also making sure that the makers or brands that we're onboarding on the platform are also very high quality and good. So that, again, the products that we are selling have a, very, a much higher chance of performing well in stores. Yeah, that makes sense. How did you build that platform to cater to different types of clients? So I can see, you know, the one person in Arizona making bracelets versus the larger person who's used to fulfilling large quantities because maybe they've sold on other platforms before and then different size retailers. How did you build a platform that caters to all of them? Yeah, it's a very hard problem, right? And that's another place where technology is used to our own advantage. We need to be very good at serving customers differently and providing a completely customized experience to different types of stores. And that's what we do. Like we, that's why data science is so important for us. And we have a very strong data science team tackling this problem of ranking and uh, personalization. The reality is we really treat each customer differently. If ever different store that comes to our platform, they have a completely different experience. If you are a store that sells gifts, you're going to see a lot of gifts. And the more we learn about you, the things that you like to see, the search that you make, the products that you sell and you buy from us, the more accurate we get at serving you products that will connect well with your store. Right? What we can't have, for example, in our platform is that you are a store that sells apparel, mostly. And you come to our store and all you, you come to our website and all you see is candles or pet products or things that are completely disconnected from your business. So from day zero, we have spent a lot of time and effort making sure that we have data and we are very data-driven and we are building a very custom experience to every different uh, person that comes to our website. Yeah, that seems super important because it can be really easy to get lost when there's tons of products and you're automatically seeing the wrong one to start with. How do you gather that data on, especially like a new customer who's never bought from you before and they're coming on for the first time? How do you have any data to even know what to show them? Yeah, so sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes we can't do it and we have to start with uh, products in different categories and then start to learn as they navigate the website. But there are things you can do in advance as well. So even a brand new customer 
they usually have a reason why they came to your website. And a lot of those reasons are they were recommended by somebody. They clicked on a link somewhere. Like if, so if they come from an ad, it's very easy to know what's the ad that they clicked on. And we at least have some idea of what caught their interest. And we can, mm-hmm. obviously, we have to be smart into like serving things or products that are related to what or where they came from. So if they clicked on an ad for a candle, we're going to show them similar types of candles or of course that same candle that they clicked on but we are also trying to show like oh here's some apparel categories as well or here's some best sellers in in a different category and again we have to show relevant data and then show enough of other types of data that uh, we can give them a chance to to tell us more about who they are and what they are interested in got it and then you most likely i'm guessing you encourage that sign up process so then you can learn more and more about them so then you can recommend products even further after that? Exactly. And as they sign up, we have some quizzes. So we ask them for more information and we we keep adding and changing how we do that, of course. But we will try to do like a Netflix style of like, what are the types of products that you're interested in or categories? How big is your store? And things like that. And the reality is we are in 2020 and every little store brick and mortar store, they have a web presence, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Once we learn who they are, what store they are, we will find if they have a website and we will learn more about them by looking at data that we can see online, publicly available data that's on the internet as well. Got it. Yeah, that's so cool. And I saw that you leverage machine learning and AI to recommend and show these retailers what's going to do well in their store. How do you know what would do well in maybe like San Francisco versus Washington, D.C.? What do you utilize to help teach the retailers what they should and shouldn't buy? Yeah, so that's obviously part of our secret sauce. And it's not... (laughs) You don't want to share that with me? Come on, Marcelo. (laughs) I can share it for sure. It's it's just like, there isn't a very easy answer, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, if you're in, in San Francisco, it's for sure that you're going to sell candles very well. But there's a lot of input and a lot of signals that we gather. So I can give you some examples that make a lot of sense, right? And and they're very obvious. For example, we have so many stores on our platform today, and there's a lot of correlation, right? So remember I told you Max was selling this umbrella, blunt Mm -hmm. umbrella, that we, even from his time selling those umbrellas, he realized and he learned very quickly that there are correlation between products as well. There is a store that sells well the umbrella, there is some products that will also sell well in that store. So they could be completely different categories of products. Could be a watch, could be a sunglass. But the customers that usually are interested in this blunt umbrella, which is a high-end umbrella, are also going to very likely buy products that are in a similar style or similar type of uh, uh, high-level, upper-cost product. Mm-hmm. So... Imagine that now instead of one umbrella, we have millions of products that we sell and we get data back from these stores. Like we know what's selling on, on each one of these customers because they're buying it again from us. Mm-hmm. So we start to be able to correlate things. So you can have a gift shop in New York and you're selling three products that are very similar to a store in San Francisco. And now you add a fourth product and that product performs very well in your store in New York as well. It's very likely that store in San Francisco will also have that fourth product performing well. Got it. That's really cool. Have you ever thought about kind of running on the side, like a point of sale system that you can put in the stores so then you don't only have access to 
the stuff that's sold from FAIR, but then you have access to their entire inventory and catalog. So then you really have full insights into like what's happening in that store, what sells together. And then you can even recommend things at a, I guess, a better pace. Yeah, 100% we have thought about that. Uh, (laughs) Are you doing it? Did I already uncover more secret sauce? (laughs) Maybe. Uh, So what we do today, of course, we don't have our own point of sale system today. Mm -hmm. But what we do is we integrate with their point of sale system, right? Got it. So we add value to them if they connect their point of sales with us as well. So for example, imagine that you are a small store and you just placed an order for 20 products. And then next week, you're going to receive all those products in your store. You need to start selling them right away, but register all of them in your point of sale. So it takes time and effort, right? You need to type the prices, the descriptions. You need to upload photos to the point of sale system. So if you as a store give us access to your point of sale system, we do that completely automated for you. So as you place an order, as soon as the order arrives in your store, all the products automatically show up in your point of sale system. Got it. Yeah, that, that's really neat. And of course, with that, we get some more data from the point of sale that we can help with recommendations as well and le- learning more about what performs well in your store. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. When you started out, did you build your platform, your e-commerce platform from scratch, or did you buy and then eventually move everything over to custom? What did that transition look like? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> we actually built everything from scratch and we built it on the go. On the early days, we started and we went through Y Combinator in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And when we were accepted at Y Combinator, it was end of 2016. I was still working at Square. Max had left already. Uh, Daniela was still working at Square. And we basically quit our jobs at Square. And we started FAIR in January 2017 at Y Combinator. And we had nothing built. Mm -hmm. And we had this pressure that three months later, we would need to do a Y Combinator demo day presentation to thousands of investors, and we needed something to show, right? Usually the companies that join Y Combinator, they have been doing something already for a year or two, and they get there to try to scale their business. We started from scratch. I was going to say, that's kind of, well, maybe it's not unheard of now because I think they do accept a lot more people now. But back in 2016, if you didn't have an actual product, you probably weren't going to get accepted if they couldn't see something. So that's awesome. Yeah. So, but then what we had to do is build it on the go, right? So, and that's also a lot of how it dictates a lot of how we operate today and, and throughout the history of the company. We have always been very data driven. So when we started, and of course, we knew this idea of like, let's let people try the products before they buy and we'll sell. We told Max, and like, we really believe in your idea, but let's prove that people really want this. So again, without any technology or any website, we went into stores that Max had contacts with because he used to sell the umbrella. And we told them, listen, we're going to give you products that we think are going to do well in your store. And you don't need to pay us if you sell the products you pay us. If you don't sell them, we'll come back and pick the products up. And the stores were like, uh, you just want to give me free products to try to sell? We're going to do it for sure. Yeah, no brainer. And so that's how we validate the idea. We, we also got lucky because we had no idea what we were doing when it came to picking products. So we just bought random products. <laughs> Turns out that one of the products we bought uh, is called Pyropath. It's this candle in the shape of animals. And when they burn, the skeleton of the animal shows up. Oh, that's awesome. I need to look that up. 
<laughs> it's very cool. They have many different animals. Well, that was one of the products that we gave to this store in San Francisco. The feedback we got from the store right after was that, uh, listen, I would never have bought this candle to sell in my store. But since you gave it to me for free and I could try it, I put it on the shelves. And the candles happened to become one of their best sellers. Wow. And that's when we saw like, okay, there is definitely something here, especially if we can use data to find actual good products, right? not just random products that we pick on the internet. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, we started to build the experience on the go. So uh, very quickly, we built a website where people could place orders. So they would see products and place orders. And everything in the background happened manually. So an order would be placed on the website. Basically, people would be able to add products to cart and check out, and they would give us we did not even collect payment information. We weren't even charging people. We would deal with payments later over the phone. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so we would get an order and we had one contractor that we hired at the early days. He would be in charge of calling the manufacturer and placing the order over the phone. So he would call the maker and be like, hey, just got an order, five pyropads to be shipped to this store uh, in San Francisco. Here are the details. Here's our company credit card. We're going to pay for this order. And uh, there was no automation, nothing else built behind the scenes. And again, we kept building it on the go behind the scenes very quickly. And fortunately, I mean, there, there are a few good things that happened with our company, right? Very quickly, we found product market fit yep. in the summer of 2017. And we started to grow a lot. But by that time, we had automated all of this process. We finally managed to build all the technology so that uh, all this order placement with the makers and the fulfillment and everything was fully automated. But it was really like building the train as the train is going <laughs> forward. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of people, that's some of the best advice is do things that don't scale in the beginning. And that's how you learn what you actually need to build on the back end instead of doing it all up front and realizing, oh, that's actually not even how the seller or the buyer interact with our platform. And now we need to redo it. So. Yeah. And now you guys are valued at over a billion, right? A billion dollar valuation or higher probably. That's right. That's insane. Congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. When you were setting up your website in the beginning, is there any best practices either setting up the buyer side or the seller side where you're like, we've seen this work really well on you know the buyer side of the platform or these types of setting up the e-commerce store like this or having certain pop-ups or anything, anything that you would recommend to someone who's looking at starting a marketplace or improving the marketplace that they're already running? I mean, it's, it's very hard to, to learn without doing it, right? Uh, and we didn't have any insights. We never built a, a marketplace or an e-commerce platform before. What we did do is we moved very fast and we built very simple things. Like everything, we spent a lot of time scoping things down. So we thought we had very good intuition that something is going to work. And of course, e-commerce is a problem that's kind of figured out today. Like there's many very successful e-commerce platforms that you can see how they do things. Right? Mm -hmm. So we always looked at the successful examples when we built our things. And then we tried to build our own version of it. We built the simplest thing possible. We all talk about building the simplest possible thing, but we, we really tried to do it. We spent time removing anything that wouldn't be essential, but we managed to build things that will add value. So we built things very fast. We launched things very fast. And we gathered information on how people are using it very fast. And then we iterated a lot, improving the experience with our learnings. And many times our intuition was wrong and things that we built 
were not the right things and we shut it down, but at least we didn't spend a lot of time doing those things. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you shut down that you see a lot of other store owners using right now where you're like, oh, we saw that didn't work well. You might want to look into that on your store. Well, it's hard to know whether it's not working for other people, mm-hmm. right? It might not have worked for us. There is one very interesting thing. It's not, not really a thing we built, but when we were in the early days trying to find product market fit, our very first idea for FAIR, as, as I told you, we walked into these stores and we told them, just keep these products. If you sell them, you pay us. If you don't, we're going to take them back. This is pretty much a consignment system, right? Yep. So that's what we wanted to build. That was our very first big mistake, I think. That was, we were very sure that we could build a successful consignment e-commerce platform where we would connect to the point of sale systems of the stores and we would know when they sell something and they would pay us when they sell and they would keep things, I don't know, until they don't want them anymore. Yep. Turns out that the word consignment, the term consignment is really, people really dislike it in, in, yeah. in our market. They think of consignment as products that nobody can sell and they are willing to give it to you for free to try to sell it for them. Yeah, that's kind of what first comes to mind when I hear that word. It's like when you go and you can sell your clothes to a company and they're like, well, we can either do consignment or we'll just give you money up front. You're like, oh, I'd rather just have money because I don't want to take that risk of you not being able to sell it because you bury it down in a bin somewhere. Exactly. So it turned out that... uh, Whenever we told people consignment, they run away from us and we couldn't understand it, right? We're like, it's a good thing. We're giving you very good products. We build this machine that finds good products and we'll let you carry them for free. And then we changed our message. We started to call it try before you buy. We're like, listen, we completely erased the, the word consignment from our vocabulary. And we were like, this is try before you buy. That's great. You get the products. You have 60 days to pay. Within those 60 days, you can return anything. And if you if you sell, great. And basically, we didn't change much of the consignment idea, uh, but uh, it completely changed how customers understood our business. Yeah, that's great. Such a good lesson, too, of how little things like that can go a long way and how just doing those simple tests could yeah really help your business completely transform into a way bigger one if you stop using certain words that maybe are throwing someone off that you're so deep in the weeds, you didn't even realize it. A hundred percent. And then and there is this, of course, concept that people talk a lot of product market fit. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's really like there's this other concept that people don't talk much about, which is the message product fit, right? It's like you you need to, to have a, a message that people really understand quickly what you're trying to do and it resonates with them. Yep. And you guys would have to have two different messages, one for the buyer, one for the seller, and not try and make them both be the same, I'm guessing. A hundred percent. Like uh, the, the way of selling fair to a maker or a seller is, is much different than the way we sell to the stores and buyers. Do you have different teams focused on that messaging or is it because it seems like it'd be hard to wear different hats where it's like one second, I'm trying to think how the buyer thinks and then I'm going to shift over and think how the seller thinks. Is it different teams or the same kind of one working on all of that? Yeah, today it's completely separate teams like sales teams, uh, ops teams. Everything is completely separate. The market team is the same, right? The messaging is one team that creates both, but the, how we deal with them internally in operations and sales is completely separate teams. And also product. We, we built, there's teams building products for the makers and there's teams building products for the retailers. 
Cool. That's awesome. So I saw you guys had a podcast that you just launched, and it made me want to ask a little bit about your content strategy and what was the thought behind launching that podcast and the goals behind it and what kind of ROI you're looking at, like for that project, if any. If you want to talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yes. So the podcast was also part of a thing that we wanted to do for a while, but uh, our customers, even though we are online, our customers are not online, right? We we are dealing with offline local retailers and they love community. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the initiatives that we're trying to build to help them with community, to get to listen to each other's stories, to learn from each other's mistakes and to connect them more. Uh, especially, and it was, it was especially important to launch it now with this whole COVID-19 uh, yes. era. Perfect timing information and, and we rushed it out uh, at this point to really get more data and get more information and, and really to support more of the retailers and makers in this time that they really need it for me i, I love listening to it it's so uh, motivating to listen to our customers stories and how they are struggling or how they are being creative to deal with the issues the feedback that i have seen so far has been amazing as well people really love listening to each other's stories and hints and uh, again they see that other people are also struggling they they're not the only ones they feel more connected so so far the feedback has been amazing and i personally love to listen to these stories yeah no that's really fun i love anything like that that shows i'm not the only one in the struggle right now and then that you can kind of bypass any future struggles that maybe you don't have to go to if you hear someone else kind of detailing it you can just kind of skip right over it if possible it's called brick and order Brick and order? Yes. And is it on Apple, Google, everywhere? Yes, it is. Cool. Yeah, we will also link that up in our show notes so people can find it because it sounds like it's a good one. Thank you. So with the pandemic right now and putting out different types of content and all that, how have you had to shift, if at all, your business model? Because I'm assuming what people were coming to buy, you know, before COVID-19 is very different than what they're coming to your site to buy now. Like, how did you have to think about shifting not only what you were maybe recommending, but also what you were suggesting to stores who are probably a lot of them closing down right now. Like how did you yeah, make that transition or shift? Yeah. So COVID has been very big for our company, right? And it hit our customers really hard. Uh, our customers, of course, are small stores. Most of them are still shut down at this point. It was a big transition for us as a company, as well as for our customers. We are this high growth startup that has been like adding more customers on both sides of our marketplace very quickly. And a lot of our focus is on growth and adding value to the stores. And suddenly this happened and we had to shift focus very quickly. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we did when this whole thing started to happen is, of course, to take care of the employees and making sure that everybody's safe. We started working from home very quickly, I think seven weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly, we shift focus to, okay, now how about the business, right? And very fast, we had to change from this high growth mindset to sell, sell, sell to like, how do we help our customers get through this uh, pandemic, right? For us, we are a well-funded company. We have a lot of money in the bank. It's easier mm-hmm. to slow down and, and survive for whatever it takes, a few years, a few months. Yep. But our, we were really worried about our customers. We're like, what's going to happen with these small brick and mortar stores or the small makers around? And we started collecting data 
that was the first thing we did. We, we run surveys with thousands of makers and retailers on our platform to understand their financial situation. We were asking things like, do you have money in the bank to be shut down for two, three months? How is it going to affect your business? So we collected all of this data. We, of course, shared uh, the aggregate of the data with the community, with everybody on our marketplace. And then we changed focus very quickly to try to help makers and retailers do the right things for them to survive. There was so much confusion on like what's going to happen, so much information all over the place that they had a hard time and they were all overwhelmed with it. So we tried to inform them. We tried to guide them on what are the right things to do right now. We changed our focus from growth to helping our customers survive this pandemic. We built uh, tools to help them apply for the government relief funds. That's great. Much needed. Applying for that was crazy. <laughs> yeah. So we, we tried to help guide them through it and help them understand all these programs, right? It's a lot of legislation, a lot of language. So we try to spend hours ourselves learning about everything and, and writing it in a very simple way that they will understand it and they know what applies to them and what don't apply to them. We built financial calculators so that they can understand what are the things they need to do. Do they need to renegotiate rent? How can they reduce expenses so that they can basically survive longer and with the funds that they have? And then the next thing we did is really, okay, now another way of helping stores survive this is helping them adapt to this new world. So first thing we did is help stores and makers. So makers that could sell essentials, they could make different things or they were already making those different things that, that are essentials. We start to help them focus on that. And for stores, the same. We're like, hey, listen, you might not be selling gifts right now, but you could be selling masks. You could be selling hand sanitizers. You could be selling other categories like food that's still in high demand. Mm -hmm. So we started definitely, we definitely changed recommendations and we guided people into adapting their business to this new world. We started to help people get online as well. Oh, that's great. Did you see the makers be able to shift and adapt quickly? Or what, what did that look like when you're recommending maybe tangential things, but also maybe something that they hadn't focused on before that? Honestly, it really impressed us at how resilient our community is, uh, our customers are. The small stores, especially the small business owners, they have survived for so long against brick and mortar stores. They survived Amazon and giant online e-commerces to keep their business operating. So they are also surviving. They're, they're being super creative on how they change their business to survive this pandemic. We saw stores, of course, struggled more than makers mm -hmm. because, again, they were completely shut down and some of them didn't even have access to go to their store. Mm -hmm. Makers adapted much faster and some of them already had web presences and they just had to switch to more of their traffic to, to online. But the stores also were very resourceful and they are really trying very hard to survive. So they, they are doing a lot of the things and following a lot of our recommendations as well. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so great hearing how you kind of shifted everything you were doing to focus on how to help them, give them the tools that they needed that didn't exist in the marketplace because who knew that this was coming down the pike. What were some of the top learnings from the survey that you sent out that you heard? Like, because something that comes to mind I just heard about was that apparel retailers, like smaller ones, don't have more than two months oftentimes of cash on hand to keep them going. So what were maybe some overall themes that you got from your survey that maybe you were surprised by? 
Yes. Uh, so at the time, right, and this, remember that the, the survey was done over a month ago now when this whole pandemic really started. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you some of the numbers and the things that we learned here. Yeah, I would love that. So 76% of the retailers only had enough capital available for up to three months of operating expenses. Wow. Yes. That's crazy. At the time, and I'm pretty sure this has shifted a lot since then, but at the time, only 30% of the retailers had anything with regards to shopping or selling online. Yeah. Some of that seems hard to believe, and it makes you realize the importance of serving someone and not just going forward with assumptions that you have about them, because I would have never thought the numbers were that high. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, and we keep trying to survey them more often as well to see how it's changing, right? Uh, other things that we learned is that 45% of retailers, they were already connecting with other business, again, trying to build more community, learning more from each other and, and sharing information. Mm-hmm. And 41% of the makers at that time had already started changing or, or reprioritizing their product assortment. That's good. Being scrappy entrepreneurs. Yeah. So we also, like, of course, we adapted and we started uh, launching and selling a lot more of face masks. Yep. And today there, we have already over 200 brands that are selling face masks on our platform. And like the masks that we sell, they are produced in the United States by local makers. Like most of the products that we sell are actually today still made or partially made in the United States. With the results of the survey, we tried to also create a lot of educational content to help everybody else learn about which, what's happening and how people are shifting their focus uh, to try to help more customers to do it as well. How are you getting the word out about that educational content? Like, How do you bring traffic to the content you're making? Yeah, so there is a few ways to do it. Of course, we very often email all this information directly to the customers in our platform. We have two blogs, right? We have a blog a blog for makers. We have a blog for retailers. We have community forums for retailers and we have a community forum for makers as well, both on Facebook at this time. Mm-hmm. And we also have hosted a few webinars that had almost thousands of people attending at the same time. Oh, very cool. How do you see the webinars paying off? Do you see people enjoying that? Do you think that's a good use of time or yeah, what have you seen perform the best? So we got amazing feedback from the webinar. People oversubscribed like we actually had a hard time uh, dealing with all the subscriptions because the platform we were using was not ready for the amount of people that showed up that's a good problem to have <laughs> yes for, for always a good problem to have but me being the cto and having to deal with the technology oh, <laughs> makes yeah. my life harder <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do to have to try and quickly we used two platforms at the same time and, and that uh, accommodated all the traffic okay but yeah, people came back and they watched again and rewatched it and they shared it a lot. So webinar is not a thing that we have done a lot, but we're definitely going to be doing more. Yeah, that's very interesting. With everything that's happening now, what kind of digital commerce trends or patterns do you see coming down the road, especially because you're so close to retailers and makers? It seems like you guys would have a good idea on like what the future could look like if you had a crystal ball. And so how are you maybe thinking about what the future looks like and how to adjust fair based on where you think it's headed. I really wish I, I could. <laughs> Come on, Marcelo, just tell me the future. I had a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, we, we can't tell the future, but we can pay attention to how fast and what direction things are going, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obvious that everybody's trying to 
do things differently and online and remote. How that's going to affect makers and retailers is still yet to be seen. I think, honestly, from my own personal experience and from the platform, there will be a lot of behaviors that will change that we do not expect to change, but they are for the better. For example, curbside pickup is a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's nearly as popular as it has become. And I think it's going to be a thing that will stick with us. Yep, completely agree. People do enjoy the ability of buying something. And whenever they have a chance, they go and grab it. I think for our platform specifically, that's going to become a very powerful thing. Because now, as I said, we, we launched this shop neighborhood, right? We can get consumers to find cool products online that they would never have found otherwise. They will find all these stores around them where they can go and find those products. They can buy it online and go pick it up. And not only go pick up the product that they bought, but they can also see all the other products in these stores and actually meet the people that are selling this in person. That's one thing that people already loved in, the, in local shopping. Right? They like the experience of walking to a shop and talking to the owner and listening to the stories of the makers or the products. Yeah, that's how e-commerce kind of started. I mean, I think back to, I don't know if you watched this, Marcelo, but Little House on the Prairie, huh? Any fans of that? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) They would basically, the shoppers would go into the store and they would talk to the store owner and say their problem. And he would go in the back and figure out exactly what they needed and then would check back in with them to make sure it solved the problem. So that's it's kind of getting back to the roots of Little House on the Prairie days. So, yeah. So my prediction, if I had a crystal ball here, if I were to make a prediction for the future is that what this is going to change is that it's going to make the relationship between online and offline stronger. There will be more intersections. Like There is a world in which you are both online and offline at the same time. And that's the, the world we live in, right? And we have been getting to this world slowly by having only online interactions and only online sorry, offline interactions. And I think what this is really making or accelerating is the merge of the two, where you have both online and offline experiences with the same companies at the same time. Yeah, I definitely could see that happening. Are there any um, digital transformations or tech transformations you see necessary to make that happen? I think the technology, a lot of the technology already exists, right? There is, of course, we have all this video technology, video chatting, video broadcasting, and they have been available for a while now. Mm -hmm. But the applications of these technologies are going to change a lot. So again, another thing that we are working on, I feel like I'm here just marketing the things that we we have been building. Hey, that's all right. I'm sure people can learn from it. (laughs) Another thing that we are working on is uh, a product that will allow people to connect virtually the same way that they have been doing offline, right? Like think about it as the experience of a a local market where makers are going to just uh, be able to show videos or or have a live experience where they connect directly with many or very few of their customers at once, like in a private or public type of meeting setup. Got it. To kind of like deepen the relationship that maybe all was virtual or through just emails or just ordering and you never know who's on the other side. You're trying to enable that relationship more and like kind of in person, but virtually. Is that how to think about it? Exactly. It's hard to give you more details yet, but <laughs> we're going to be launching it this summer. That's great. When it comes to thinking about digital transformation, I know earlier you said that you would look to uh, successful examples of other companies of how they set up their e-commerce stores or you know strategies they were utilizing. 
that was the early days. Is there anyone now that you look towards as kind of like an, a leader when it comes to uh, digital e-commerce or someone that you're following closely where, you know, they have best practices that you guys like to keep tabs on? I don't think there is one company. I think, uh, of course, coming from Square, we look a lot at Square uh, yeah. and what they have been doing. But uh, I think our platform is special in a way that uh, we combine local stores, like these local relationships into an online global marketplace. I think of our platform as being or having some intersection with Pinterest, for example, which creates like a very nice experience for people to navigate to things that they are interested in. So we as a platform, I want our customers to enjoy this experience of finding products. Right? Our customers, if you think about it, they started a small store because they love to find products to show people, to sell, to show their friends. So to be able to get this type of people to shop online, we need to create an enjoyable experience for them as well. They need to come to a website where they enjoy navigating. They enjoy looking at products. We're going to show products that are always relevant. They can keep diving deeper into a category and finding new cool products that they, they like. So again, it's not just looking at e-commerce, but looking at what are the platforms that are offering the best possible experience that really get people to be hooked on, onto them. Yep. and trying to merge it all into our own platform. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such a good reminder that just because maybe, you know, you sell clothing, you shouldn't just look at other clothing companies. You should maybe look at, you know, how food companies are doing it. Or like you said, like looking at Pinterest and how they display images and trying to just tap into completely different verticals to then pull those best practices up into your company, I think is super smart. All right, so we have a couple minutes left and we always do a lightning round at the end where you answer a question in a minute or less. And I was thinking about starting with the harder one first and then doing the fun ones afterwards. How's that sound? Sounds good, let's try. All right, Marcella, so it's your job to stay ahead of tech and expectations and your competition in the industry. In your expert opinion, what's up next for e-commerce pros? Answering from experience, of course, what's very important that's fair. E-commerce is not just about showing products anymore or, or like letting people navigate through categories of product. The future of e-commerce is really a very, very customized, personalized experience. Data science is mandatory for successful e-commerce today. Yep, completely agree on that. All right, what's up next on your reading list or podcast list? And it can be your own podcast if you want, you're uh, the brick and order. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely our own podcast, talking <laughs> about podcasts. I have enjoyed it so much. <laughs> Inspires me to keep doing my work. Uh, on the re reading, I'm, the next book that I'm reading, I, I have just started is Finding Genius, mm -hmm. which is like VC related, not really uh, e-commerce, but it's pretty interesting. Hey, that's great. Yeah, exploring different industries and verticals. That's what it's all about. What's up next on your Netflix or Hulu queue? So I have just been watching random things. I haven't had much time to watch TV lately with all the things we have been building. Mm -hmm. I finished watching The Vikings on Netflix. That was the last series I watched. Very cool. After that, only random movies that I just find. They might even be old movies. There's nothing exciting. Usually I fall asleep if I start watching it. Hey, that can be a good way to uh, slowly drift off to sleep. <laughs> So yes. once you can leave your cottage in Toronto, what's up next for travel destinations for you? Oh, that's an easy one. I was just about to go on a cruise. Oh, where to? I was considering going on the cruise when this whole thing started. And 
Max and Daniele were telling me, there's no way you're getting to a cruise ship right now. Yeah. We were going from New York all the way to the Caribbean and back. Oh, fun. So I'm hoping to do that trip at some point in the future. I was yeah. really excited about it. I hope so too. All right. And then the last one, what's up next on your shopping list? It can be tech stuff. It can be something you saw on fair that you're like, I want to try and order that groceries, anything. I, on fair, I have been ordering a lot of things. Uh, the next thing that I want to buy is a drone. A drone? Okay. What kind of drone are you thinking? As I am at the cottage, that's why I'm, I want to buy a drone. As I have stayed at the cottage since the social distance has started, <laughs> uh, I would love to have a drone that I can use to like explore the forest around us here and, and maybe find some of the animals that are around, deers and rabbits and things like that. So that's next on my shopping list. That's fun. Well, maybe all the COVID stuff has a little plus that is making you explore different hobbies that you didn't have before. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, this has been a really fun interview. Everyone go check out Brick and Order after this. I know I'm going to do that. Marcelo, thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.